Well, I'm going to present the first paper, the one that focuses mainly on Hungary first, and then we'll do the Q&A for, I think, 10 minutes, and then the second paper after that and questions following that. So this um, article um, is really a key point in my dissertation. That's why it was a good one to sort of center around, because I think it's a good snapshot of what it is that my research is about and what it is that I'm doing. Um, so essentially this piece started off because uh, this past year was the 60th anniversary of the Hungarian Revolution and so um, there were lots of prompts to examine the, um, the impact of 56 and after Toby Ryder came out with this excellent work Cold War Games last year really um, showed me the importance of the defections and I wanted to see the impact of the defections in particular on Hungary for the athletes that returned to Hungary, the athletes who stayed and sort of how did that impact elite sport um, after this major revolution. So, really quickly, I wanted to explain why Hungary. Uh, Hungary is a very small country in Eastern Europe and is typically caught between East and West. It was also one of the small, very small satellite countries of the Eastern Bloc, so it typically gets overlooked in the literature because most scholars look at East Germany and the Soviet Union, and rightfully so because those, because of their political situations, had a lot of uh, really interesting elements of their history that can be used to illustrate the rest of the Eastern Bloc, but I use Hungary as sort of a unique case to show how some of these sort of central European middle uh, satellite countries sort of finagled their way towards a slightly different path for socialism, and particularly in Hungary after 1956. So I will talk very briefly about uh, Stalinist, the Stalinist period in Hungary. Uh, this is the period between 1948 and 1953-55, kind of depending on what it is you're looking at and who you're talking to. And this is called the Stalinist period because the leader, Matyash Rakoshi, was known as Stalin's best disciple out of all of the communist leaders during that time. Uh, this is the period of really mass repressions, uh, collectivization, thousands of people being monitored by the secret police and show trials. And so this is sort of the typical really harsh Stalinism, harsh communism period that we normally uh, use to portray the whole, the whole period. And uh, this time, the same thing happened in sport in that it was very closely controlled uh, by the Council of Ministers, which uh, comprised of the main party leaders. And I really like this picture at the top because I think it does a really good job of showing how closely or, or to the extent to which the top party leadership politicized sport. And that the man with the, the hat on, that is Matyash Rakoshi. Uh, this picture was taken at the, training, the Olympic training camp in Hungary. And he, on, on either side of him, are one, on the left side in the military uniform, that's the Minister of Defense, uh, Mihai Farkash, really high-ranked party leader. And on the right, you can sort of see, is Jula Hedji, who is uh, the figure who pops up a lot in this article. And then behind him, in the white shirt, that is uh, Aladar Garevich, who was a very famous fencer, went to multiple Olympics. And so just the, the image of the, the, top, the very top Communist Party leaders at the Olympic uh, training camp, and they would spend weeks there with the athletes, sort of making sure that the athletes were training hard, that they kind of knew about their personal lives, really shows how closely uh, or tightly connected elite sport, particularly Olympic athletes, was with the top party leadership at this time. Now, the Stalinist period is typically portrayed as a period in which everyone suffered and was really harsh on average Hungarians. Now, because athletes were elite cultural figures within communist society, the communist state, just like in all the other communist countries, really highly um, 
controlled and tried to monitor their behavior on the one hand with lots of punishments to make sure they were acting the way that the state wanted them to, but then they also offered them a lot of really highly prized rewards, such as better access to housing, the ability to buy a car, of course, the ability to travel abroad, uh, which is um, what all athletes, any athlete who could travel abroad was an elite athlete. And so I, so even though there's this mass repression going on, from the beginning, sport leaders like Hedgy really implemented what I call sort of a carrot and stick system. Um, and then it's this combination of punishments and rewards that continues throughout the period but starts early on in 1948. And during the Stalinist period, it primarily consists of really, really harsh punishments. So even though they are allowed to travel and athletes were allowed to smuggle goods in and out of uh, the borders, which I can talk about later um, during the Q&A, um, they were still primarily the state used punishments to try to keep them in line. Now, I should say I'm only going to talk about two cases in the paper because it's just a little too much to talk about in, in, in 20 minutes. But I'm going to start with the case of Shandor Zuch because, again, his case really illustrates the Stalinist period. Um, that's him right here. He was a, a member of the Doja team or the police team, um, which all, most of the um, top players were concentrated on the army team or the police team at this time, just like in every other communist country. And he was also a member of the Irani Chapot, if anyone is familiar with uh, soccer history, which was the golden team or the magical Magyars that really dominated soccer um, in Europe or worldwide, depending on who you're talking to, in the 1950s. So he was a really, really highly, both skilled, highly prized athlete, but also someone that really came under the close scrutiny. And what happened was in 1951, he decided he wanted to defect to the West partly because he wanted to escape his marriage and uh, basically elope with a lover who was a very famous singer, but also because he had heard that he could obtain a really lucrative contract in Italy or Spain for about $10,000 is what the secret police documents say. So in March of, um, in, sorry, in early 1951, he starts planning to defect and the Ministry of Interior and the secret police find out from secret police informants on the various uh, football teams that he's trying to defect and by this point, a lot of, as I talked about in the article, a lot of other athletes had defected, like Lazo Kubala, who sort of started the Hungarian tradition at Barca. Um, and so they were trying to figure out every possible way they could to prevent athletes from leaving. And so they decide to make an example or a lesson out of Zuch. And so they have a secret um, police agent infiltrate or sort of break into the planning circle, Zuch's planning circle, to defect. And this agent, um, unbeknownst to Zuch doesn't know about this, the agent convinces Zuch to bring his gun with him because he was a policeman, he had a gun. And he said, well, if you go to the border, if you bring your gun, you can put away two to three men on his own, is, is, is the quote from the documents. So he, he goes to defect on March 6, 1951. He has his gun with him. He is caught at the border. And basically everything falls apart. And so this happens March 6. And on March 19th, there's a, um, sorry, sorry, May 19th, 1951, there's a mili military tribunal. And because of the fact that he brought his gun with him, um, he was considered a danger to the socialist country. They decide to kill him and they execute him by hanging um, by, I believe, the end of May 1951, if I have my dates correctly. Um, so this is a really, really extreme example of what the state was willing, or the lengths the state was willing to go to, to keep athletes within uh, the country, but also, again, to show a lesson to other athletes, this is what will happen to you if defect. And um, this quote is from Dula Groshich, who, um, who was the goalie of the Golden Team. He only died a few years ago. He was one of the stragglers. 
And in a documentary in two, episode in 2010, he said about the Zuch case, having decided in advance that it would be a possible deterrent to other Hungarian players to scare off thoughts of remaining outside of the country, uh, poor Shani, Shandor for short, uh, Zuch became the victim of Hungarian football at that time. And what's interesting about this case, and, and some people have called it a show trial, is that the case was conducted in closed doors, as a closed trial. There was no mention in any of the newspapers that I've been able to find. And, and, and I believe the state did this because they didn't want the public to find out that they'd executed one of their top players because that would not go over very well with the public. Um, but enough athletes knew about it, and, and it passed to all of the, at least the football players and even beyond the community of Hungarian football players. And it was such a successful lesson to the extent that no athletes defected until 56, until the 56 Olympics. And before that, there had sort of been at least a trickle of athletes, a couple every year who had left the country. And then it really sort of hit the nail in the coffin of, and, and really convinced people to stay in Hungary. Otherwise, you might be killed or your family might be killed as well. And this is, sorry, this is the um, grave that was put up for him, I believe, in the early 2000s. And this was a case that was only rediscovered after 1989. I mean, the football community and a lot of the sport community knew about it, but became sort of a sign of the Stalinist terror. Okay, so I will just talk very briefly about the 56 revolution. Um, it began uh, October 23rd, 1956, started off as student protests, and within a couple days, um, the protest, by the end of the first day, the protesters were shot at, and it forms into a full-scale rebellion. What happened with the Olympics is the timing is really sort of fortuitous for a lot of athletes and in that the timing really worked out for them because uh, the rebel when they left for the Olympic Games on October 1st, um, the revolution, the, the Hungarian revolutionaries had won and that the Soviet tanks had retreated and uh, a new government had been formed and, and, and municipal governments had been formed. So they left for Melbourne thinking that the revolution had won. And on the way to Melbourne, they learned that and indeed the Soviet tanks had rolled, back in, had rolled back into Hungary and had crushed the rebellion. So they arrive in Melbourne or they're not sure what's going on. They don't know what's happening to their family. And basically everything is really chaotic. And I really like this picture on the right because that is a flag of the Kingdom of Hungary. They purposefully got a flag of basically pre-communist Hungary to raise into the Olympic Village, which is something that the IOC, I mean, the flag is like taken down a few times and finally the IOC is like, we'll just let it be there. Um, but I think it's a really symbolic uh, image. And this man right here, this is Jula Hedgy, who was, who was the sport leader throughout this time, who was basically legitimizing the, the raising of the flag by standing there, uh, which I think is really fascinating. And then, of course, that's the, um, I assume that's the Olympic team behind them. So they get to Melbourne, and like I said, everything is really chaotic, and most athletes don't perform well because obviously there are much bigger issues going on. And Hedgy is, in a lot of uh, memoirs and accounts, was reportedly drunk for most of the time that he was there and was totally despondent. And he knows, he doesn't know what's going on in Hungary. He knows a lot of athletes are going to be thinking about leaving. And there are many, many reports and oral histories are done and stuff that other people have done that, where people have said that he didn't try to prevent them from defecting, which is really interesting because you would think that he would want to bring back everyone he could possible because obviously if a lot of people leave, it looks really badly on his own reputation, his own status for the new or the post-56 state. Um, but when athletes came to tell him, a lot of them said that he offered them a parting shot of palinka, 
of alcohol and gave them a sausage and basically shed a bunch of tears and said, good luck, I hope to see you again, um, which I think, I think also he sort of left the door open to, to, have, to continue to have good relationships even with the athletes that left. Um, and saying that, you know, because we're not parting in bad terms, if you want to come home, we will, I'll, I'll do my best to welcome you. So while this is all going on, there's a, a couple, um, a bunch of American individuals in the U.S. that decide that this would be a really great uh, sort of propaganda and, and political moment to, to bring as many athletes as want to go to the U.S. And that's what Toby Ryder's book is about. So I won't go into, into too much details, except to say that, again, that a third of the Hungarian Olympic team defects, which is the largest group of any one national team at any time that I know of. I don't know how many Czechs left in 68, but it is a really, really solid chunk of the, of the, of the country's best sporting uh, athletes, basically. And just to, I should have said this at the beginning, but Hungary was one of the world sport powers in the 1950s and that they received the third most medals at the 1952 Olympic Games. They received the fourth most at the 1956 Olympic Games. So this is, I mean, basically number three and four behind the Soviet Union in the U.S. And this sort of, again, really select group of athletes is leaving is really, really impactful. Okay, so I'm going to hop to the case of uh, Deju Jarmati. Um, he's sort of my favorite character in all of this, and I say character uh, for a very specific reason. So he um, was a water polo player, was the captain of the water polo team uh, for most of the 50s, even into the 60s. He's considered one of Hungary's best water polo players of all time. And uh, when the revolution breaks out, and, and while, they're on, while they're on their way to Melbourne, he is elected as sort of this unofficial leader of this revolutionary committee that they set up. It's sort of a name, uh, a committee in name only. And um, he decides on the way there, and he announces that he's not going to shake hands with the Soviet water polo players. And so uh, m some of you may be familiar with the blood in the water match um, that really ends in a really bloody way uh, with the Hungarians soundly defeating the Soviets, thank goodness. Um, but the, the Soviets take notice of the fact that Jarmati will not shake hands with them. And there are a couple reports um, basically, basically from the Australian security forces saying that they overheard the Russians saying that they were going to get Jarmati when he got back home. And so he actually, even though he was um, sort of a supporter of the revolution in different ways, and even though he very visibly wouldn't shake hands with the Soviets, he returns to Hungary like a lot of the athletes did because of family reasons. And what happens is that in January of 1957, so weeks after they return, he is beaten up pretty badly by a bunch of, by a bunch of Soviet soldiers in Budapest, and he decides, this is it, we're leaving for good. And he was married to Eva Seke, who was uh, called Madame Butterfly. She was a very famous Hungarian swimmer, multi, uh, I think, gold medal Olympic swimmer. And so the two of them decide to fact in early February 1957 with their daughter, who later becomes an Olympic swimmer. And first they go to uh, Western Europe, hoping to find a contract, some coaching contracts. Nothing happens there. So by, I believe it's by mid-March 1957, they end up in the U.S. because Ava has some relatives in New Jersey that they're staying with. And uh, this quote is really, I think, superb. This is an interview that he gave to Sports Illustrated only a couple weeks after he, uh, after they arrived. And as you guys uh, may know from my other piece, Sports Illustrated really played a big role in bringing the athletes over after the revolution and in publicizing the fact that they were there, that they were defectors. It was a good PR moment for uh, the American state. And this quote says, um, I'll just read part of it. At home, the cowards rule in the shadow of Russian tanks. Many of our friends have been deported to Russia. 
Others, uh, others are kept in prisons and camps without the pretext of a charge or the formality of a trial. The free world is the first line of defense, and he continues, we must cherish this freedom not for any ulterior or personal sake, but for those who look to us for encouragement or support. So this is a really uh, sort of damning uh, statement to make to Sports Illustrated, for them to publish it within the U.S. and for it to be spread worldwide is really, I mean, at this point you think there's no way he's going home. He's definitely staying in the U.S. And this is again in April of 57. And what happens is that um, someone finds him a job at a bank as a bank clerk in New York City, and he admits in his autobiography that he only lasts a day, that he really hated the work, that it wasn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to either play water polo or coach water polo. By August of 57, he's so upset that he can't get a coaching or playing position that they decide to return to uh, Hungary, which is really interesting. They were basically so dissatisfied with the fact that the capitalist sports system in the U.S., well, not capitalist, but happen to be capitalist, wouldn't provide them what they wanted. I mean, these were really, really highly priv privileged athletes that didn't have to work. They had state jobs or basically titled jobs um, that were a name only, and they could practice and play all day and compete wherever they wanted. So the idea that they would have to work a full-time job was totally anathema to what they were used to. And in some ways, you know, it kind of makes sense. It's such a drastic uh, shift from what they had before. So in August of 57, they decide to try to return to Hungary, and there's a sort of a series of negotiations and of a sort with the Hungarian sport uh, office. And initially, the Hungarian sport leaders say, no, you can't come home. And then they say, your wife can come home, but you can't. And then finally, they decide to allow them to come home, uh, both with, officially with amnesty, full amnesty, although um, Jarmati endures... Um, several bouts of really intense interrogation that he talks about in his autobiography. So he essentially turns from basically one of the most outspoken defectors to a cooperator, so is the term that I've come up with. And what happens is that, so he returns in August of 57, and the Hungarian sport office announces in the newspaper, so they want to make it known that this is how the government's going to treat athletes that are basically athletes that portrayed the country. They displayed it in the newspapers, and they say that he is forever banned from competing internationally, so he can't go to the Olympics, he can't go to the World Championships when they start, um, but that in 1960 he can start competing domestically. So throughout the rest of 58 and 59, he uh, admits to working with his contacts and trying to talk to the coaches that he knows and the other players that he knows to try to... Uh, alleviate or suspend or basically erase this um, this ban from international sport. And in, uh, in January of 1960, he starts playing domestically, and it took a while to find a club. I should add, it took a while to find a club that would take him because someone with his kind of reputation was a real black smear on, on the reputation of any sport club. And then so early 1960, he starts playing again. And then in July of 1957, the Hungarian sport offices announces again in the newspaper that, they, that Jarmati is going to be allowed to join the Olympic team. And you guys are all Olympic historians, so you know why. It's because the 1960 Olympic Games started one month later in Rome. And they wanted Jarmati's talent and skill, and I also think his leadership, to try to, if not win a gold medal, to at least show the world that the Hungarian sport community wasn't so depleted, that the defections didn't, um, didn't hurt them that much. So that's a pretty quick turnaround from when they had decided to ban him in, per in perpetuity. 
And then after the 1960 Olympics, his career just continues to basically uh, improve from there. And that once he returns to Hungary in 1960, he's awarded a medal for his effort, one of the state medals for his sport effort, which was given to almost all the Olympic athletes. And he goes to the night, he competes in the 1964 Olympic Games. And he retires after that. And then in 1976, he's brought on as the coach of the Hungarian Olympic water polo team. And that's what this picture is here. This is Jarmati right here. And then these are members of the water polo players. I uh, interviewed these two in the middle. And um, he helps them win a gold medal in, in water polo at the Olympic Games, which they hadn't done for, for a couple. They hadn't done, for I believe, since 1964. So what, what I think all this shows is essentially that once... Jarmati decided he wanted to go home is that he realized that the best way to get what he wanted, which was to play water polo, to have fame, to have the material success he could have in the U.S. and be able to compete, was he needed to, was that he needed to cooperate with the state. And so um, this, this sort of shift from being a defector to cooperator shows that, you know, a lot of, and a lot of these athletes were willing to basically cooperate with the state after 1956 because, again, the idea of going to the West wasn't this sort of golden fruit that they thought it was, and I think that's what German T's experience showed. And, and a lot of the athletes that I interviewed for my dissertation, they didn't necessarily cite this case, but a lot of them said, yeah, we heard about those athletes that left. You know, their lives weren't so great in the U.S., and they, you know, a lot of them were working as janitors, as um, Tabori's case shows, a lot of them were working as, you know, store clerks and things like that. Some of that was probably American propaganda, but I, or sorry, Hungarian state propaganda, but I think it was also true in a lot of ways, and that, again, this gap between what the communist state could provide them was actually really great, as long as they were able to sort of deal with um, the fact of living under communism, which at this point most of them knew the rules of what they needed to do to um, get by. And then this picture um, is a picture is um, a, a form of Olympic commentators, I think, at the night... I think for the 1984 Olympics, in Jarmati is the third from the left. He kind of has his hand up right here. And he's surrounded by Olympic athletes on either side of him. So I think by the, I mean, I would say by the early 60s, he's pretty much on par with all the other athletes that have achieved as much as he has. And sort of the blemish of the fact that he defected is pretty much gone. I mean, I'm sure that they, I'm pretty sure that they were still always afraid he would leave. But the fact that he had left and come back that he had chosen to return, I think, was probably pretty convincing to sort of show what he was uh, willing to do. I, I mentioned how a case like Hungary sort of tells us something different about um, what sport under communism was like. And the 1956 revolution, I think, does a really good job of highlighting not only the changes within Hungarian society, which a lot of um, Hungarian historians of literature and other aspects of culture have shown how the state really treated its elite figures a little bit differently than everybody else and how the state relaxed a lot of its policies and sort of allowed people to breathe a little bit more easily. And you certainly see that in sport. And by, with the overwhelming focus um, by scholars on East German, the Soviet cases, what you largely see is the doped-up athlete or the wily resistor. Um, right, someone that really spoke out at the Olympic Games. I mean, Vera Cheslovska and her looking down at the 1960 Olympics is a really memorable image. There was a Polish, I think, pole vaulter, I can never say his name right, at the 1980 Olympics that kind of did this like kind of interesting hand motion to show his resistance to Soviets. And someone like Jarmati, which there were many who were willing to cooperate with the state, Jarmati shows that there's sort of a gray area in between and that athletes realized, again, that if they wanted to get the best or the most of what they wanted was to cooperate. 
And I think, and then, and so while you see that athletes are willing to cooperate, what you see with someone like Hedges, you see, and I talk about this more in the article, is that sport leaders are willing to relax their policies with athletes because they didn't want any more to defect because they were afraid of what would happen if even more athletes left. So this um, second piece is a little bit further from my dissertation is something that I've picked up recently and that I was initially only interested in the athletes who stayed in Hungary. And then again, I was talking to Toby. We had him at my university for a talk and um, we were, you know, he gave his presentation and, and, and I said, I think Laszlo Tabori is still alive. And I thought, if he's still alive, I have to go interview him. And if I'm going to interview him, I'm going to write about him. So actually, when I was at the Nash conference, I, I, I rented a car in California and went out and interviewed him. And so this, this uh, article that I need to submit really soon, actually, is, is sort of a product of this piece. Um, and that I wanted to look at what happened to two of the athletes who did defect in 1956 and sort of what happened to them after they came here. Because all we know, basically, is that it's a success story for the, for, um, the American government. It's a success for America's Cold War sport policies. But as we talked about during the Q&A, you know, most athletes experience a bit of sort of a dip in their quality of lives because the systems were so different that the, that the cultures, the sport cultures and political systems were so vast. Russian. <laughs> I don't even know what that says, but that's okay. <laughs> so um, th th this is a picture of Igloi with his watch and with Tabori. And this is a picture of them at the Santa Clara Valley Youth Village in, I think, 1958, if I've got the date right. And um, like I said, some of the questions I'm interested in is sort of what happened to them once they came here. Most of the studies of Cold War sport in, in the U.S. Um, focuses on government sport policies and sport leaders and what they decided. And kind of like with my other work, I'm, I'm always interested in sort of what happens to the people, the people that these sport policies depend on, which are the athletes in terms of what actually happened to them. How did they understand uh, what, how did they understand sport in the Cold War? How did they understand their cultural capital uh, from being athletes and the status that came with that? And then, of course, to see what happened or the extent of America's Cold War sport policies, what that looks like on the ground level. Okay, so very briefly, I'm going to talk about Igloi, this man right here. Um, so he was a middle dis um, one of Hungary's top middle distance runners in the interwar period. And in 1939, he went to Finland and Germany to learn about different training techniques. And he learned from both of them about this new-ish uh, training system called the interval training, interval training system, which was, some of you guys may know, is a matter of training uh, basically putting your body under race-like conditions where you do fast, short sprints of very short distances with some slow jogging in between. And the point is to train your heart and your lungs and your legs to be able to mimic race state conditions so that when it comes to uh, running on the track at the track meet that you can, that you can execute as, uh, as he would say, you could sort of execute whatever time it is you wanted to get with the most um, accuracy as possible. So he learned about this in 1939. Uh, he survived World War II. I don't actually know what he was doing in World War II. And then in 1945, the way that Igoe describes it, he bumped into a Soviet POW truck. And for some reason I can't figure out, he was taken to a POW camp where he was there from 1940 up to 1950. And actually, um, I found out last week after I submitted this article that there, um, there was an article in one of the Hungarian newspapers calling for uh, Soviets to release 
athletes in the POW camp and coaches, including equally, which is really interesting that they were kind of bold enough to print that in a newspaper because that's very anti-Soviet. So, so he developed this system, began in the late 30s, and then once he's released in 1950, he's almost immediately brought on to coach Honvade, which was the army team because the Hungarian government sport leaders know that he has this really great um, training system and they want him to train Hungarian champions. And so he, like I mentioned earlier, most of the main, the main sport clubs sort of cherry-picked athletes and, and consolidated them onto two teams, and that's what he did. I mentioned in the last presentation how athletes, and, and coaches too, but really athletes, led really, really privileged lives uh, during the 1950s, even during the harsh communist period, and Tawari was certainly someone who really benefited from this in that because he was on the military team, he had a military rank, he didn't have to go to a job, he could train 12 times a week if he wanted to, or even 13. Basically, all he did was train, which as we talked about during the Q&A, was a really, really unique opportunity at this time. He received um, his his. His uh, biography is really interesting because he, in the interviews, he switched back and forth between saying that he only received like a piece of chocolate after he like won his races and achieved his achievements, and then he would say, "Oh, but I also received to a two-bedroom apartment and uh, six thousand forints, which is the equivalent of six months uh, rent, six months salary for the average Hungarian." So that's sort of the memory thing that I think is really interesting. How they're like not willing to admit up front, you know, everything they receive from the state, and then they'll sort of backtrack and really explain what happened. And I really like these um, these quotes because uh, I think they really sort of demonstrate. Even though he was, even though he said, you know, we only received chocolate, he was also willing to admit the really great privileges they have. And I'll just read the second one. Um, if you succeeded on, at sport under socialism, you were helped immensely. And this is certainly true um, as early as 1949. And again, it's something that um, is sort of the side of, of sport under communism that a lot of people don't typically focus on. Now, what I also mentioned earlier is that this really, these really great privileged lives did not leave them prepared to come to the U.S. And this is essentially what I'm going to be talking about. The main thing that I'm just going to say about this, and, and I didn't mention this in the last presentation, but this was a spread in Sports Illustrated. That, And again, Sports Illustrated was one of the members or one of the groups that helped bring them over, helped bring the athletes over after the 1956 revolution. And uh, Sports Illustrated and Time and Company were run by some pretty hardcore anti-communists, so it makes sense why they would want to make use of this propaganda opportunity. And Sports Illustrated was, was tasked with not only funding, uh, or giving funding for the athletes to tour the U.S. to sort of uh, show their talents to the American audience, but also to help them find homes at universities, but also to create these wonderfully edited, edited pictures, um, which I think are just brilliant. And this is Tavori in the bottom right, um, running in, in Central Park, which is kind of tip, uh, not typical, pretty, pretty amazing, I think, sort of statement of this is American freedom, that sort of thing. Of course, the reason why uh, the American government and American individuals wanted to bring them over was, was for the PR purposes, but was also because they wanted to benefit from the sport talent, the sport expertise from these athletes, and they really wanted these athletes to raise the next generation of American athletes who were not only capable of winning gold medals, but of course over the Soviets as well. And while it's not entirely clear whether this directive a message was ever given to athletes, whether this was sort of an agreement or not, I think it was must have been pretty clear to these athletes sort of the political reasons why they were being brought over. 
So um, the athletes were flown over in uh, 19, uh, December of 1956 during the winter holidays. And uh, 1957, as I mentioned, or not as I mentioned, but as it says here, is a, is a year of really high highs and low lows. And the first six months, as I mentioned earlier, Sports Illustrated more or less supported the athletes and in particular supported uh, Tabori and Ikoi um, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, made sure they had housing, made sure that Tabori had a place to train. And this is in part because they were doing those tours around the U.S. and he was going to track meets up and down the East Coast, both to, to basically get his body back in shape, but also for propaganda purposes. And while they're at UNC, they fortuitously meet uh, Jim Beatty, who becomes Iglowie's first American-born success. So it is a really sort of lucky thing that they ended up at UNC and met, met Beatty because he ends up being a big player later on. So once Sports Illustrated cut them off, which is what Tabori said, he said uh, Sports Illustrated cut them off very brutally in May of 1957. And so for the rest of the year, they're sort of anxiously trying to figure out, find their bearings, figure out how they're going to be able to train and coach and still basically um, uh, have enough to, to feed themselves. So they go out to California and they end up staying there thereafter. And throughout the latter half of 1957, uh, Tabori is working as a janitor, this first stint as a janitor. Then he moves to a, um, then he works in, as a, in a factory as a cobbler, which is what he'd been training in Hungary. Eagle always working in a factory and they're really, really unhappy. And this is where this quote comes from. Um, it's his sister gave this quote. I'll just read part of it. He was deeply depressed, but that should be no, dis uh, no surprise because they had everything back home. They could travel and admiring fans surrounded them. The most importantly, he got promised the role when he arrived here, and six months later, he was on his own. Um, and this is very much in talking to Tabori, and, I, and I'm interested to see what the other athletes say too. This is very much his impression was that he got basically dropped, and how dare they? Which, again, from an American mindset, is like, well, they supported you for six months. And how could you expect that they would do that more? So, again, it's very different from American culture and the way we would think about it. So, in November of 1957, word gets leaked out. or uh, There are newspapers that surface saying that Talbury wants to come home. It's not clear. I couldn't get out of him whether that indeed was that, 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 that article came from him. He was kind of um, unsure about it himself. But regardless of whether he really wanted to go home, the articles uh, motivated a couple individuals to spring to action for him. And one of them is C.D. Jackson, who was, the, who was heading Sports Illustrated at that time. And that's where he finds the two men at home, a home at the Santa Clara Valley Youth Village, where they remain from January 58 to June of 61. So even though they have a pretty good deal at the youth village and that the um, Jackson at Sports Illustrated is coming up with the money, he has to raise between ten dollars and $12,000 a year to support Tabori. Um, equally has housing and is taking English language classes at first but really is unsatisfied. He in particular was really, really struggling because he still had to work some kind of job. And it's interesting because in, um, there's a lot, there were a lot of letters that went back and forth between Walter Schmidt, who was sort of the director of the sports program at the Youth Village, and Jackson of Sports Illustrated. And in April of uh, 58, Schmidt says, you know, Tabori just is like basically he just wants to work part time. I don't know what to do with him. He's really frustrated. He says he's not willing to work. He only wants to work part time. And then so they, the youth village decides to hire him on and he starts doing like janitorial work and gardening and things like that. And that's where this quote comes from. 
uh, when I interviewed him last May, and he talks about I was sweeping the floor, cleaning up the toilets, and I had a few old records behind me. I didn't have any money, I didn't know other people yet, and I was still competing. So again, even though you know he has a home, it's so vastly different from what he had in Hungary um, that he really, you know, at least at the beginning, is kind of struggling to adapt. I won't say refusing; he's struggling to adapt at this point. So um, as soon as they get to the youth village, Schmidt and Jackson are trying really hard to publicize the fact that they are at the youth village, not only to solicit donations from really wealthy people and from readers of Sport Illustrated, but also because they want to let people know where they are so the athletes can come out there to train. And from the get-go, from January 1958, there are mainly male runners, of course, that are going out to California to go train with Igloo because they've heard of how successful he was in Hungary. They know that he trained runners, that, that the third, uh, you know, the third runner to break the four-minute mile and that, that broke uh, four by 1,500 uh, relay records and things like that. And this quote from Schmidt in uh, Sports Illustrated, I think, really does a good job of, of sort of giving that message when he said, I thought your readers, so he's addressing the readers here specifically, would like to know that the Santa Clara Valley Youth Village track team has hired the great Hungarian coach to train our distance runners. We are confident that Mr. Ikloi can do equally well with our Youth Village boys and will field a distance running team which will give the Russians a real battle at the 1960 Olympic Games. So not only are they alerting readers of where they are, but, but he's expressly connecting these Hungarians to American sports success and specifically the, to these Cold War sport aims of defeating the Soviets. And in this picture, that's Igbo in the middle, Tabor in the left, and then that's Jim Beatty on the right. And by 1959, Jim Beatty, who they'd met at UNC, heads out there, and, and the story goes that he, he walked up to top, he walked up to Igloi. Igloi didn't recognize him, and, and then he finally introduced himself, and he said, basically like, oh, you're fat. Because I guess he had gained weight because he hadn't been training for a while. Um, but, but Beatty goes out there in late 1959, and by about February of 1960, he's already winning races. He's already one of the best milers in the country. And that just sort of shows like how quickly Beatty, Beatty adapted to Igloi's training methods, but also how fast Igloi's training methods actually could work on people. That within a few months, you could go turn someone from being completely out of shape and overweight to basically winning races throughout the U.S. So in 1961, the arrangement at the youth village ends, in part because whenever, uh, whenever Jackson and Schmidt had written to donors asking them for more money, they always portrayed the, pro the Igloi Tabor project as, as ending at the 1960 Olympics, saying that this is sort of the end point. And Jackson and Schmidt are able to sort of corral a dribble or a small amount of green checks, as they call it, and they continue to employ them until... June of 1961, and then that's basically it. Again, they're sort of cut off, and they, they need to find their own way. Fortunately, by this point, Igloui had made enough of a name for himself through Tabor, but also through Beatty, that um, a track expert by the name of uh, Dick Banks, who's at California, approaches Igloui and says, let's form a track team. And track teams were very uh, expensive uh, endeavors, and uh, in part because you had to pay the, you know, the idea of paying a coach Full-time was, again, not really that common in the U.S. at that point, but also because the runners themselves were working full-time and didn't really have a lot of spare money to pay in club fees. So the club system was, from what I heard from a lot of people, was really unstable at this time. 
So they formed the club um, at the end of 1961 and 62 through 63, pretty much the peak years of the club. And at this point, the LA Track Club, which is what it's called, ends up being, I would say, the second best club team in the nation, probably second best only to Bill Bowerman's program at the University of Oregon. And in 1962 alone, uh, Beatty has, holds every record from, I think it's the 1,500 meters to the 5,000 meters. And um, from the beginning, he has attracted a whole horde of really excellent runners. So it's not just Tobolorean Beatty. He has Jim Grell, who had been training with uh, Bill Bowerman at Oregon, Bob Schul, Max Truex. Bob Schul goes on to win a gold medal at the 1964 Olympic Games. So they have this really core, tight group of elite runners from the beginning, and that's one reason why they're so successful. So 1962, they go on this really great European tour, um, and this is sort of unique because the Amateur Athletic Union, which is the organization that basically controlled amateur athletics and sort of decided who was amateur and who wasn't, who could go to the Olympics and who couldn't, um, they decide to give Dick, they decide to give the LATC free reign to go to come on a tour to Europe. Uh, which was really rare. Usually athletes were selected and coaches were carefully selected and they kind of gave them free reign, which I think is really fascinating. So 1963 hits, and at this point, Tavori has been training with Eagle for 10 years. And again, if you know anything about interval training, it's really, um, if, if you're running, it's really, really hard on your body. I mean, and, and Eagle famously did interval training sets every single practice. Um, so you can imagine what that would do to your body at this point. So that was sort of the, the one issue that influenced him to retire. The other thing was that he had a bit of a, a, bit of a tiff, a bit of an argument with Egoe because Egoe wanted Tabori to be a true amateur and not receive any money. And Tabori, I think I have a quote in there, he says, like, we were drawing like 20,000, 30,000 people to our meets and I wasn't getting paid anything. And a meet director would offer to give Egoe money to give to Tabori and Egoe would say, no, he's amateur. Um, so I think this, uh, he, he sort of hinted that this is the thing that sort of ended it for, not only for his career, but he sort of came in a part ways with Eagle Um And they, they stay in touch, but this is kind of the end of, end of the road for Tabori. And then Beatty retires soon after because he gets, he kind of cuts his foot and that uh, does him in. So by the end of 1963, the LA Track Club sort of starts to fall apart. And again, a lot of this is because of financial reasons, because the athletes themselves can't, they can't work full time and compete at the level they need to, to compete at. I'm sorry, they can't train at the level they need to train at to be competitive internationally. You know, they're competing against athletes in Eastern Europe that are training 12, 13 times a day, as opposed to these athletes that are working, you know, full time jobs and trying to squeeze in training in the mornings and the evenings. The, the thing that really hits the nail in the coffin for this sort of the heydays of the LATC is that they lose their financial backer runs off with the money. And the backer was the person that paid for them to go to meets, that paid for them to uh, go, you know, helped support them to go to Europe and pay for their plane tickets. So this is a huge, huge loss. Um, but there, Eagle always still has some runners with them, one of whom is Joe Douglas, who's a character that comes up later. Um, so we'll just keep that in mind. So after they leave, so 1966 finds Eagle basically without a job and with runners who want to run with him. But this is actually fortuitous in a way because um, he he had been in contact with the coach with the high school with the high school coach who's this man right here, Charles Valenti. And uh, when Valenti found out that Eagle was basically penniless, Valenti said, "Oh, I would love to have you work as a track coach at my high school. We'll get you some PE classes so that you can at least continue to, to work here." 
So instead of training primarily elite Olympic level champion athletes, he's training high school athletes, which is a much sort of lower level, if you can imagine. But he's also introducing pretty much for the, for the first time, he's introducing his methods to high school coaches as well. Uh, which I think is really important in terms of like really spreading that influence to not only be at like an elite level, but to more broader base because a lot of people do run track and cross country. Those are very popular uh, high school sports in the U.S. And I love these pictures in part because I contacted him thinking he was still alive and he was not, but his, his widow uh, was really excited when I contacted him and sent me these pictures this is like an original picture I have at home and was just so excited, like, oh, this was such fun memories and they really, you know, they really loved Eagle and that's them on like motorcycles in front of the team. So I just, you know, it's, you know, if we're talking about an impact, it's not only about a sporting impact, it's also about sort of the relationships that you develop. Okay, I think I'll probably end uh, with Tabori. So as I mentioned, Tabori retired in 1963, but by 1968, uh, people sort of knew who he was within the California region, and he's approached to start coaching in 1968. And um, so he starts coaching first at the San Fernando, uh, San Fernando Valley Community College, which is a, at that time was a small two-year college, and he's using interval training with his athletes almost every night almost every day, not quite like Eloy. And he very slowly starts gathering more and more and more runners. Um, to the point where by 1972-73 he gathers his small army of runners, as he says, and forms an official track club. And the financial issues are still there, but um, I think that by this point Igo was pretty well aware of the fact that he was not going to be able to make enough money by coaching. So he had, I mean, he had a real job at this point. So what I really like about, what's really important about Tawari when he starts coaching is that by this point, female runners are really starting to enter the scene. And by the late 60s, early 70s, well, I guess mid to late 60s is when the long distance running boom and the jogging boom begin or basically finally come to the U.S. And so you have people that are not only training for like track, really short distances, but people that are in a marathon running that are being, again, being introduced to interval training. And this top picture, this is Jacqueline Hansen. Um, she won multiple Boston marathons. She was the first woman to run a marathon under two hours and 40 minutes. Uh, really, really lovely woman. When I interviewed her, she had nothing but really great things to say about Tavori. Um, and she said, you know, he was very encouraging of female runners, but we, she would put us right next to the male runners, and we did the exact same thing as everybody else. So, like, and, and, and Tavori credits this sort of, like, genderless approach to well, this is what we did in Hungary in the 50s. Our men and women ran side by side. And this is before, um, right around when Title IX in the U.S. Is, is passed, where the American government decides to, like, force universities and colleges to provide opportunities, some opportunities for women. Not a lot at the time, but some. So not only is he training women and high school and community college runners, but in the 80s he opens up his coaching abilities to adult runners. And I found all these articles of these like marathon runners in their 50s that were running with Tabori. So again, you know, in terms of like the spread of the influence within the U.S., you really see it broadening out with um, not only with Igloo, but really with his uh, successors. And then he, Tabori, coached part-time at the University of Southern California until about two years ago when he got sick. So pretty much till his mid-80s, and this is him with Dwayne Solomon, who went to the 2012 Olympics, I think in 800 meters. So again, you know, he's still very, very much alive, but still using um, Igoe's methods at a very, very, very high level. 
So what these, I think, stories, uh, basically the histories of Igloway and Tabori show is on the one hand, they show the real limitations of American sort of Cold War sport policies and what the the government was willing to pay for them and like basically sneak them out of Australia. I mean, not even tell the IOC anything that was going on because they knew the IOC would have gone berserk. They're willing to bring them to the U.S. and sort of parade them around the U.S., but in terms of helping them actually find places. You know, if if an athlete couldn't find a place in university, they were kind of out of luck. And so I think these two stories show how they show two individuals who who understood the value, their value as cultural exports, their value in terms of their cultural capital and what they could bring to American sport. And sort of once they very slowly figured out how to grapple with the system, they really did their best to, to use their strengths to the greatest extent and create Olympic champions. Um, and I think, again, you know, most of the studies on Cold War sport don't really look at the actual people they impacted, aside from, aside from the studies on race, because that's in, in the U.S. has been really developed quite a lot. But when it comes to some of these defectors, there's very little known about them. Um, and I think that's it. <laughs>